Simon Bucknell is a renowned public speaking expert who, naturally enough, I first heard talk at TEDx London earlier this summer. Simon is passionate about creating greater inspirational impact through the art of verbal communication, a skill all too often overlooked in today's society. Over the past decade, Simon has helped professionals from all walks of life to take their speaking skills to the next level. His clients span senior figures across all industry, refugees, social entrepreneurs, government ministers, wedding speakers, as well as school children and prison inmates. Without being able to communicate our message clearly, what are we and what hope do we have? I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is your London Legacy. Okay, well, I'm delighted to say today on the podcast, Your London Legacy, I'm joined today by Simon Bucknell, public speaker extraordinaire. Lovely to be with you. <laughs> it's uh, lovely to have you here, Simon. And thank, thank you very you. much for inviting us to Dartmouth House, I believe it is. the That's home, right. The home of... The English Speaking Union. English, it seems appropriate. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. It's an absolutely stunning building right here in the heart of Mayfair on Charles Street, I think. And we're sitting, actually, we're taking a bit of a little bit of a chance because we're sitting outside in the <laughs> courtyard. It was a little bit noisy inside, and we're just outside where there's been some rain. We just mopped down the chairs. That's right. If you hear the pitter-patter of, of raindrops <laughs> on microphones, then you'll know why. You'll know we have to leg it inside. But at the moment, <laughs> we're braving it, um, and it's really pleasant out here. So, um, as I say, I'm delighted to have Simon on the podcast today. I first met Simon back in July the 1st, I think it was, at mm -hmm. TEDx London. So you're the third guest I've managed to get on board from uh, <laughs> from the TEDx talks at London. You weren't aware of me at the time, I guess, because I was one of two and a half thousand people in the audience. Big crowd, yes. It was a big crowd. Um, you're very used to speaking in front of big crowds, I guess. Well, uh, yeah, so that, that definitely counts as, as a pretty big crowd. I think uh, two and a half thousand people in the Royal Festival Hall is uh, yeah. uh, quite an experience. But yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's something you, you, you get used to, like anything, you know, the more that you more that you experience something, the more familiar it becomes. Yeah. And you had the task of opening up the gig, I think, mm -hmm. um, the first of 20-odd speakers. And obviously, you weren't aware I was in the audience, paying close attention to all the speakers. And, and you opened up and were talking about the, the need for communication, and obviously yes. in your, your role as a public uh, speaker and trainer of public speaking to, to assist people to communicate better. When I came up to try and meet you at one of these speakers' breaks, of all the guest speakers, you seem to have the biggest crowd around you, <laughs> which obviously you've got a magnetic personality. Well, that's very sweet of you to say so. <laughs> but I'm just wondering, why, why do you think that is? Because there were some fantastic speakers there. Yes. Well, why do you think people had such um, an interest in, because public speaking absolutely scares the pants off most people, yet yes. they were gathering around you well, well that might explain it a bit because mm. there were quite a few people who are interested in some tips on how to handle certain sorts of situations so it's clearly it's a it's a, a how-to area and i think also speaking is something that is true for pretty much everybody on the planet so it's something which of course everyone can relate to even if you're not actually standing up and speaking to very large crowds and of course for people whether whether it's in, in the workplace or in your personal life you know a birthday or a wedding or whatever having to stand up and speak in front of an audience is something which most people i think can relate to you know whenever I, if i mention to what i do or a taxi driver asks me you know would you like to say public speaking they've always got a view mind you, you could say taxi drivers always got a view on everything yeah, absolutely, but, but i think it's something which yeah people can relate to and and as a result there was a lot of interest which was great fantastic well it was a wonderful event and I'm just interested to know how you first got involved or in your desire to get involved in public speaking. What was, what was your sort of moment of madness? Because obviously, as you said, public speaking, absolutely, well, let's put it bluntly, shits most people, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> and 
they shy away from it. And yet it's something you've taken to and obviously appreciate that there's a, a need for communication, both yes. in, at a corporate level yes. for our future leaders, but also for the, for the kids of today. Absolutely right. So what, Absolutely. Was, what was it that got you into it? Uh, for me, it was, a, it was a bad experience, to be honest. It wasn't, I didn't take an interest in public speaking because I was determined to make a career as a speaker or as a coach. Far from it. So I, in my first job, had to, uh, well, two things happened, one of which I mentioned in the, in the TEDx talk, but I had to make a phone call in my first job very early on in my career, and it was very nerve-wracking for me. I was talking to someone very senior, and I didn't do a very good job with that phone call. I found myself feeling very nervous. Mm. And subsequently, when I left that job after a couple of years or so, I had to give a speech at my leaving drinks, and I hadn't prepared one, I hadn't had much practice, and, and it was hideous. For me, at least, I, mean, I don't think the people, the, my colleagues, were that bothered about it. But I have a shaky voice, and I was felt like I was hyperventilating. It was really horrible. I remember it very, very clearly. It was in May two thousand and one, and somewhere in my head, there was a little voice that said, "There must be a way to improve. You've got to get better at this." Because it's not that I hated doing it. I'm not one of those people that always shied away, but I did find it challenging, especially because of the adrenaline. And I thought there must be a way to improve. So find yourself a gym for speaking, if you like. And so that's why I sought out uh, Public Speaking Club. And in fact, I came and visited this, uh, the English Speaking Union as part of that journey. So I found a Public Speaking Club, uh, a Toastmasters International Club, and, and joined, and, and that's where it all started. So did you have to do some formal training to become a public speaker, or was it just something that flowed naturally and you started No, it? I, I, in fact, that, that very phrase, public speaker, is an interesting one, because public speaking is something you are speaking about a subject. It just so happens that the subject I speak about is also the medium. Mm. <laughs> so, so there's all sorts of speakers, uh, as anyone listening to this podcast will know, on all sorts of topics, whether that's business-related or is related to politics, academia, or it's to do with the environment, whatever. all sorts of speakers, of course, as we saw on the TEDx London stage, huge array of different individuals. It's more a case of expertise being communicated. I think that's the way to think about it. It just so happens for me, as I say, that the, the medium through which I speak is, of course, also the subject, speaking mm, about speaking. Mm. But in terms of formal qualifications, no, not at all. I did go through a, a process as a member of a public speaking club. There's a certain structure to, to the Toastmasters International Programme, which was very, very helpful for me. But actually, I think the most significant influence, I think, for me in developing as a speaker, rather than just lots and lots of practice, because it's a skill, not a gift, has been uh, exposure to really good mentoring people that have been supportive. They've offered feedback and critiquing and so on, whether that's formal or informal. And that's very, very valuable. If you cast your mind back to your talk you gave at the TEDx, um, I know it's a few months ago now, you said that there were four key skills that we need to take a, be very much aware of going forward in society, of collaboration, critical thinking, creativity, and communication. The, yes. the four Cs. I didn't appreciate they're all Cs, but the yes. four Cs there. And yet, communication is something which we take for granted and we don't do very well and it doesn't and it's certainly not taught to us other than by our parents you know go, yes. go, 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 and you know how to, how to communicate in that environment yes but formal communication yes. isn't taught at a school level why do you think that is i think there's a number of reasons i've talked to lots of teachers about this and my wife is also a teacher as it happens and so my take on it is this there's a number of reasons the first is that is that i think there is a perception amongst some policy makers that the ability to speak is some sort of inherent gift. And once you've learnt to be functionally literate through the spoken word in a language, in your native language, then that's it. Uh, and that it will just naturally improve over time. So I think that's one thing. In fact, a former education secretary of this country, who I did quote in the speech, uh, did say, you know, children naturally learn to speak. They don't naturally learn to read, uh, which 
in my view, is an absurd mm. distinction. I really do believe that very strongly. And so there is a, I think, a commitment within the education policy framework to the development of analytical reading and writing skills, uh, but for some reason not in speaking. I think it's perceived as perhaps a second factor. It's it's perceived as somehow being softer, I think. And of course, in the workplace, people talk about soft skills. And it's quite an unhelpful phrase in a way, because it suggests that somehow it's it's actually a little bit easy. Mm. And it's a, it's something that people can just it's just part of life. And we do it all the time anyway. You know, people don't sit down and write essays all the time, but people do speak all the time. Yeah. So I think we tend to, it's very easy to take it for granted that we have the ability to do it well. And of course, in normal conversation and chat, that's great. The question is, how does, some, how does an individual perform when there's something at stake and, and, there is, and there's, uh, you're under pressure? And of course, as we go through life, we face certain situations where our ability to communicate well as speakers is absolutely critical, mm. whether that is interviewing for a job or whether it is speaking at a wedding, whether it is um, presenting to colleagues within the workplace. There's all sorts of situations where speaking under pressure uh, and with real intent matters and you've got limited time and your impact in that moment can make or break your reputation. And it shocks me, frankly, that it's not taken more seriously, not just in this country, in the education system, on the curriculum, sure. but in many others. Because there's a great difference between having small talk, almost like we're doing now, or having a chat at a party, yeah. and as you say, talking and communicating with intent to get that's a point right. across or a message across. And that's something that's not taught in schools. In fact, one of the other statistics or comments you made at your talk absolutely blew my mind was the fact that how many words a child speaks in in a class i think during the course of That's a day right. yeah this is and it was from i think the research was done in the uh, in the mid 2000s uh, looking at a sample of, of inner, inner city secondary schools and yeah four words per lesson uh, actually spoken out this loud. Now, of course, that's that's a particular study. I, I would very much hope that there are plenty of students who are speaking more than four words per lesson, but absolutely. Well, the yeah. kids who are speaking more than four words per lesson are probably the ones who get called out and sent to the headmaster of being naughty well, and speaking right. out of time. That's right, yeah. Well, I, and it's been said by, again, by a, by an education minister, a uh, schools minister some years ago, that, that speaking, talking in class is, that there's a watch out because it can be distracting. Mm. And I think there are many people, I think, who take the view that a good and well-behaved class, at least as far as schools are concerned, is one that is quiet, quiet. and is listening. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy. What's striking to me from talking to teachers is how important it is on the part of the actual individual teacher to have the skills to be able to facilitate meaningful talk Indeed. in class. Whether that's public speaking or whether it's um, discussion groups, that does, of course, take some real skill. But from what I understand, at least, in terms of the actual training that teachers receive... Well, I think you said your wife's a teacher. <laughs> mm. uh, my wife is a just recently retired teacher, uh, albeit kids with special needs, but still working in mainstream schooling. And she was never taught how to take classes in communication. It's always about sit quietly, listen, pay attention, and follow, you know, do what I do, not what I say, you know, yes. that, that sort of stuff. Yes. But to not have communication on the curriculum, on the formal curriculum, is, to me, absolutely outrageous. It was a few years ago when I was first running sessions in schools, there was a, as it was known then, a speaking and listening component within the English GCSE. And for friends that are listening from outside of the UK, that's for the exams that you take at 16 years old, typically. And it was uh, when running public speaking workshops in schools, it often worked very, very well for the school because it gave students a full day to work on their skills and then do an actual assessment as part of their GCSE at the end in the form of a presentation that was stripped out a few years ago and I think for, again for a number of reasons one of the I think one of the big challenges within formal education 
with certainly public speaking is uncertainty or disagreement over how to assess it. Now, as I said in the, in the TEDx speech, of course, we do that with other languages. You know, if you do a German oral exam, yeah. you know, that's spoken German Indeed. or spoken French, spoken Spanish, Chinese, whatever. For some reason, there seems to be a, some sort of reticence to, to take the assessment of spoken English seriously. And as a result, it's been, it's been stripped out. So th- there is a, requ- a requirement for students in this country to present, to develop their public speaking. It doesn't count for anything. It counts for zero. And I think, well, what kind of message does that send? To people, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It would it would seem to me, and I recall with 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 fear and dread actually having to do with these these oral examinations when I was doing French and German at school. I think I can't remember mm. what they call them, viva voces or something, <laughs> which was an oral, oral examination, yes. and it put the fear the fear of God into you. So we just had a little bit of a bizarre experience. I, I won't go into too much detail on the podcast, but. Um, we were asked not to continue this interview, um, but uh, we are continuing. We, we're living we're, on the edge. We're, we're living on the edge. We're really pushing the boundaries here in uh, central London, and we're, we're conducting <laughs> a conversation in a place of public speaking. So here we are. We're back again with, with hushed voices. I'm back here with Simon. And we were talking about education and why public speaking and communication isn't taught on the curriculum. And uh, I think we now, we now got a better understanding because people don't like it. But and one of the big challenges with public speaking is handling disruption. Is handling you di- never know what's going to happen. Never know. Expected construction. Yeah, this, this, this. <laughs> we certainly weren't expecting this, were we, Simon? We thought we we thought we'd come to the place of um, what, right. what, what's the name of this building? Uh, Dartmouth House. Dartmouth yeah, yeah. House. And what goes on here? <laughs> public speaking. Public That's speaking. Right. And we're having you know, years ago. <laughs> I, I was doing a best man speech for a very good friend of mine. This is back in two thousand and seven, uh, and it's on literally on YouTube and everything. Halfway through the speech, the microphone failed and it was yeah marquee and there's about 120 people there the microphone completely failed and of course i had to figure out what to do so i just put the microphone down and just spoke much more loudly yeah. it was amazing because i think some people thought i'd done it deliberately and i had to say afterwards no it really wasn't part of the plan for the microphone to fail but it got a cheer it got a cheer just Fantastic. because just you just carry on he just yeah. get on with it and that's what we're gonna do that, we're gonna stiff right. up a lip and all that there we go and i even felt a spot of rain but we're gonna carry on mm. regardless you sound like a test match special <laughs> cricket <laughs> cricket commentator yeah there. we had no rain over the summer <laughs> cricket this year which is fantastic did you see the cricket yesterday I, i've seen some of the highlights yeah, yeah amazing what a couple of days what a finish been. it was yesterday that dates this interview doesn't it yeah, yeah. really Fifth does test against injury at the oval really there we does. go anyway, amazing we <laughs> so anyway let's carry on so it's clearly important it's, yes. it's not taken seriously <laughs> by the general, at, by the public at large, or by the school authorities uh, or the policymakers. I, I think I'd say policymakers. Policymakers. I, I, I think that uh, many, many teachers absolutely see the value of it. Um, but in the end, teachers are going to be influenced by, in terms of how they allocate time, by what is prioritised in the in the syllabus. Sure. You know, at the risk of bringing out that old chestnut line of teaching to the test. Um, I've interviewed all sorts of teachers who say, "I'd love to spend more time." helping my students to develop their ability to speak and mm. etc but i've got to spend a lot of time actually building cultural literacy so that we can crack jane Eyre. yes now i'm not saying that studying 19th century classics isn't a good thing of course but at the moment it feels to me as though that still not just in this country but elsewhere that still a that the overwhelming focus is on reading and writing valuable skills as they are and not a whole lot is invested in speaking of mm. course there are some schools perhaps at the initiative of an individual teacher or head teacher or department that will run with extracurricular clubs or debating clubs or whatever. Fantastic. But it's just striking that it is extracurricular rather than it being something that is core. And of course, extracurricular outside of, uh, you know, the normal hours of, of school 
is going to attract the kids who are interested in public public speaking, not the kids who probably need it more That's than right. more than most. Exactly, it will be typically taken by those that are already the most confident. Yes, yes. So yes, the others are going to be left behind and be yes. even worse off when it yes. comes to going for interviews and presentations and the like. So what what, what are the what are the key things that people are most scared of when it comes to public speaking? If you are training somebody to give a talk, I don't know, in your blue chip sort of corporate hat on when you're teaching uh, entrepreneurs and business people, what are the things that typically scare the pants off them? Well, I think whether you are uh, at school or whether you're a, a business leader or in professional life in some other capacity, at the heart of it is a fear of looking silly. It's the fact that you are exposed because lots of pairs of eyes are focused on you that makes it high stakes. Now, uh, so it comes down to reputation, reputation critical presentations, and there's a lot of them. Of course, in a school run, that's concern at looking silly in front of your mates. If you're a, as I say, a business leader, then it's uh, concern that it will compromise how you are perceived as a leader. And of course, in the case of some presentations, it's uh, speeches, especially if it's say market sensitive, then it's got to be delivered right in terms of credibility for the actual for the company. It can potentially move a share price, and of course, sure. there have been instances over the years where a speech that's misfired has resulted in um, significant damage yes. to a to a company. And of course, people in politics then. Again, it, when things go wrong, it can seriously harm the reputation of that individual politician. So I think that is the, the base fear that underpins it, the fear of looking, of looking silly. Lots of things spin off that, actually. You know, what happens if my mind goes blank? What happens if I don't say it right? What happens if people just fall asleep? That's a very uncomfortable set of yes. possibilities. Because it reflects back on you and your own sense of self-worth, I suppose. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, so, and surprise, surprise, many people, very smart, capable people, deliberately avoid presentations, for, or speeches, we'll call them what you will, for precisely that reason. Sometimes in very senior positions. You know, I've met, I remember meeting with one C-suite client of mine who said, you're here because my board want me to be on CNN, and I don't. <laughs> but, but can you help? <laughs> Because sure. I've realized I've got to a point where I don't think I've got much choice. I can't avoid this any longer. So is that a case of somebody being confident in a small circle of friends, a small group of peers, but absolutely dead nervous when it comes to presenting his own image in the public? Yes, public I think way. so. I think so. It's the what makes a safe environment. Well, it's different for different people. You know, it might be around the dining room table at home with, with family or it might be within your team. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a safe environment that people feel comfortable with from a communication point of view and meet all sorts of people who will say, yeah, I'm fine if it's five people, 10 people. Once it gets above 20, then yeah. it starts getting difficult. It's different for different people. But I think that there is an understandable perception that speaking in public to a large crowd or an unfamiliar crowd with potential key stakeholders in that audience that makes it exposed and therefore uncertain and a bit intimidating yes uh, and part of the challenge and, and for me in helping people with that is to help them to to rethink what that scary exposed environment is really about because of course it always represents an opportunity it doesn't have to be a threat sure i'm just thinking i mean i, I haven't had to do a great deal of public speaking but i remember a couple of years ago in my in my day job i do with insurance claims property insurance claims and i i had a stand at um a fascinating exhibition called the Flood Expo. <laughs> mm -hmm. Not not interesting unless you're uh, involved in that industry. The Flood Expo at um, Excel, and uh, I got asked to give a talk. And I thought, my God! I thought, and I've only been dealing with insurance claims for twenty twenty five years, so I really do I should know my subject. And yet, when it came to preparing the talk and standing up there in front of thirty people, forty people, but they were all experts in the insurance industry. But I just stood there, and I 
I think I came across pretty well, but I just felt I wasn't good enough. I just mm. felt I don't know my su- subject. And everybody in the room knows the subject far better than me. And they're going to pick holes in everything I say. And it's a really weird feeling because, of course, it's not, it's not true. So that feeling of, um, I don't know what the expression is, is, is not being worthy. Yes. It's a syndrome, isn't it? Oh, imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome, that's yeah, the word yeah. I'm looking yes, for. Absolutely. This imposter syndrome. It's really damn scary. And yes. you start to sweat and get palpitations and your hands go clammy and then you forget what you're saying and then your eyes go blurry and then you forget where you are and you talk and you think, yes. oh shit. <laughs> and it becomes, or risks becoming self-fulfilling then. Yeah, absolutely. Who's in the audience really matters. I think mm. that's so, so true. And especially if presenting to people who, yeah, either are more expert or perhaps older than or more senior than or whatever the characteristics are, that does make for a challenge. But uh, as an individual, you always bring something fresh. You always bring, as a um, long-standing mentor of mine, Peter Thompson says, you always bring a magic ingredient to a presentation, which is your take, yes, you know, your perspective on whatever it is. Because I think many people make the mistake of thinking that successful speaking is all about knowledge transfer. You have to transfer lots of information mm. to demonstrate that you're credible. But actually, the spoken word is a very poor medium for transferring knowledge and information. The written word is much, much better. Um, what it is very effective for is for emotionally connecting with people and for shifting the way in which people perceive a particular topic. Mm. And so in that way, as soon as a speaker starts to see their speaking as being not about knowledge transfer, which means I've got to memorize and know lots of stuff, but instead to see it as an opportunity to shift uh, the way in which people see a, see a topic, influence them in some way, then I think you're in a much better place. Mm. And of course, I mean, imparting knowledge can be pretty tedious because if you knowledge a lot of people think of knowledge as sort of facts and figures and stats and the thing that gets messages across more than anything in my experience is storytelling and of yes. course everything yes. we've ever, ever learned we remember passed down from generation to generation whether it's you know we're within our culture religion or whatever it's stories which are passed down and they are then transcribed into the written word but it's the stories and the images that stay stay in your mind forever yes yes absolutely right that's right because of the you, you paint the picture and it's interesting how this does cut across culture i think a few years ago i was doing a session in the gulf with a group of about 14, uh, mostly Emirati, although there were a couple of other nationalities represented as well. And we were looking at how to use storytelling in presentations. It was proving to be quite difficult. They're all very indiv- senior individuals and all very, very technical in their knowledge and understanding, engineers by background and so on. And so the presentations tended to be very technical and very rational mm. and, and quite difficult to follow, not just for me, but even for their colleagues. And I remember just as uh, I spent some time as a child in, living in, uh, in the Middle East. And, and so I remember just seizing a vase from a table in the corner of the room and stick it in the middle of the room and saying, right, get your chairs around this. Right, here's our campfire. Because you know as well as I do that in this part of the world, there is a tradition in the desert of mm. sitting around the campfire and, and singing songs and, and uh, reciting poetry and telling stories. And the whole energy changed. It was quite extraordinary yeah. just by approaching it from a different angle. And as a result, people opened up and, and people were very personal, very emotional, very, very powerful stories started being shared because suddenly they're in a mode tapping into how actually they behave and part of their, their history and culture. And of course, yes. it's not just the Middle East, but also all around the world. Yes. We tell stories all the time yeah. when we are relaxed and in conversation with friends and so on. I think uh, it's a big missed opportunity in... Uh, especially in workplace-based public speaking, the use of stories, the drawing on personal experience. I think many people shy away from it because they will nobody be interested in that or it's a bit soft and fluffy. But actually stories, as you rightly say, hugely powerful 
provided they are used to make a relevant and important point. Yes. Yeah, I'm just thinking, um, as I said, in, even in religion, which is the biggest story, you know, the greatest story ever told, I think was the name of one of the, the biggest films in religion, wasn't it? You know, you, you think of the parting of the Red Sea and the story of, you know, about Moses and the parting of the Red Sea, or you think of, you know, the Last Supper and Jesus and the Last Supper. So all these things are stories, yes. and you can see the imagery and the stories around them. And you don't need more than that, really, to, if you can get that image of the story into the, your audience's mind, then you, you're halfway there, aren't you? Yes, that's right. That's right. What about humour? How does humour? How do you fit humour into uh, communication? <laughs> well, it's it's hugely valuable. That's for sure. I think that if I had a client just recently who said, "Can you can you help my people be funnier?" <laughs> she said, "Because I I just seen how powerful and valuable it can be in meetings to help defuse difficult situations." So I think just as many people see public speaking mistakenly, in my view, as being some sort of natural gift. In reality, I strongly, passionately believe it's a skill that can be worked on and improved. I think the same is true with humor. Uh, and the reason I say that is from experience of talking to and learning from people who are in that world. Um, I remember a few years ago attending a and participating in a stand-up comedy course run by a friend of mine and a wonderful speaker and also experience on the stand-up comedy circuit. And it was an extraordinary insight, actually, into just how hard comedians work. I mean, I, I think, actually, in terms of people to observe and to learn from in terms of audience connection through the spoken word, there's a lot we can learn from stand-up comedians that are really good. Obviously, they're looking at it purely for humor. That's the end in itself, the laughter, yeah, at least in most cases. But the ability of a stand-up comedian to, to connect with an audience, to build rapport, to call back on things from the part, uh, from earlier in a, in a set... in. Uh, and to build that relationship with an audience, I, I think they are masterful. But what's striking to me and what I was exposed to in the stand-up comedy course was just how much, work, how much work has to go into the honing of the material, the timing, figuring out the right language, pruning, pruning. So I think it's hugely valuable, to answer your question, humor. I think many people write themselves out of it. They think, well, I, I'm just not funny, uh, which is a, a mistake, I think, uh, because everyone has the capacity to be funny, whether intentionally or not. Yeah. Oh, you can tell we're in a big city. We're there comes the helicopter. Now. <laughs> it's um, all happening in London. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's very useful. I think there's a couple of ways in which it can be useful. One, of course, in terms of humour, with the initial building of rapport when, you know, in a client meeting perhaps or, or in an interview, of course, it helps to relax everyone present. So humor is very useful in that way. I think it, it can also be a very, very powerful way to make a serious point because as a result of humor, if there's laughter, then the listeners are, are open to you. There's emotional connection there. You don't laugh genuinely laugh in the company of somebody if you're not relaxed that then sets you, puts you in a very very good position to then make a very very serious point by by contrast so and, and vice versa as well a very very serious point then can then be counterbalanced by humor to help lighten the mood sure uh, and that can be can be hugely hugely effective yeah it's interesting what you say about um, how hard comedians stand up comics you know, anyone performing in that sort of industry have to work yes to their skills yes one of the, the great American podcasters, a chap called James Altucher, recognizes this and he interviews a lot of comedians because he appreciates how, how hard they have to work. Yes. And he has actually put himself through stand, becoming a stand-up comic. Has he? Yeah. I mean, he's not a comic. He's not a comedian. Uh, yeah. He comes from an entrepreneurial business background. But what uh, a process, I imagine. To and get, he wanted yeah. to learn the process because he appreciated it, how damn difficult it was 
to master the craft of standing up there yes. and talking, you know, being humorous for whatever long, 10, 15, 20 minutes, yes. getting the audience to to laugh and because every audience is different and, and managing that whole process and putting himself on the edge because he thought if he could do that, it'll improve his skill as a podcaster, as a, as a, as a host of a podcast as well. Uh, so I, I think humor is crucial in getting stories across as much as anything else. I have to say, actually, on that point, that anyone who's listening to this who would like to improve their skills in connecting through the spoken word, whether it's in your personal life or in your professional life, I strongly recommend the value of taking a serious look at stand-up comedy. As you say, James has clearly done that. And I did. it was an eight-week evening course, I think, that, that I did years ago. And some of the things that I learned from that have been so, so helpful. And actually, there were two or three bits of material which I've subsequently used a great deal in the sessions that I do. So what, did you write your own material then? Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It culminated. The course culminated in doing a five-minute open mic session in front of about 140 people. Wow. Yeah, how, it was how, a friends and family. It was a, well, it was a, friendly, a fairly supportive <laughs> yeah. audience because it was, we obviously we invited lots of people that we knew. But yeah, it was tremendous. Absolutely extraordinary experience. Sure. Yeah. But it took, it absolutely took hours and hours to hone five minutes of quality material. Because humor is important, as you say, not just maybe in a business setting where you want to lighten the mood some, sometimes, but also to get a crucial point across. But also people talk sometimes in their life, they'll have to give a best man talk or yes. a talk at a wedding, yes. you know, something like that. Yes. And then everybody's expecting them to be the funniest thing ever on the planet they've ever seen. I've seen your talk, your, uh, your uh, oh, you best s- man you've speech, seen the best yes, man. Okay. Which, which was very good. <laughs> I thought it was very funny. <laughs> it, well, it certainly had the, um, the audience there. In, in it got raptures. a good response. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's a mate of yours, was it? I didn't, there was your... Yeah, it's a very good school friend of yeah. mine. Yeah, where the microphone failed, of course, yes. yeah. Uh, yes, and, and in the years since, I've done a lot of work with wedding speakers as a result of that talk going online. And, and I think there is, uh, on the part of many best men, often a sense of panic. Oh, my, my speech isn't funny enough. And of course, the, what often happens with wedding speeches, especially with best men, is that because they're so concerned about having to be funny, they then default to either taking jokes off the internet, bad idea, or going crude. You know, they, they, they panic their way into trying to, I've got to make the audience laugh somehow. And end up saying absurd things, which actually can sometimes be quite upsetting for yes. some people who are present. So the best humor uh, emerges. You don't pluck it off the web, I don't think. In, in my view, the best humor, there is humor in everyday situations. And I still remember this from David Jones, who ran the, the stand-up comedy course that I, that I did under his tutelage some years ago. He said, the difference between a solid comedian and an outstanding comedian is a notebook and a pen. That willingness to notice stuff. Uh-huh. When I look at some comedians, Michael McIntyre is an yes. obvious case here in, in this country, of whom I'm a huge admirer. A comedian's ability to notice things going on and, and for the listener, oh, that's so true, that is. It's familiar to us, but we didn't spot it until the comedian shone a light on it. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a really, really valuable skill to uh, habit to cultivate, mm. not just for humor, but for speech making in general. And when you're doing a best man speech and you're picking up points that members of the family say yeah that's exactly him you've, na- you've nailed him that's, yeah, 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 that's, that's really right. funny I you know, didn't have the balls to say that myself but <laughs> glad you've said it so what are you involved with presently in terms of getting into school or charity work are you involved in anything like that at yes all? in fact I'm in discussions right now well, in discussions I've initiated a relationship with a children's charity called I Can which works to support children with learning and communication needs uh, around the country and I, I, so that's very exciting and in fact that was triggered by the TEDx event actually oh, wonderful so so very excited to to be involved in supporting the work that that they do and and of course over the years I've been involved in all sorts of pro bono initiatives and and and, uh, and so on with with different 
charities and organizations. You mentioned a couple, I think the Speakers Trust and yes, Petchy Foundation. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So, so for a number of years, uh, I think for uh, five or so years, I was, uh, yes, an associate of, of Speakers Trust, which is a, a charity that delivers public speaking workshops in the broadly third sector, if you like, be that in schools or in, in charities or not-for-profits and so on. And one of the biggest programs that the speak, that Speakers Trust delivers is on behalf of the uh, the Jack Petchy Foundation, which is the so-called Jack Petchy Speak Out Challenge, which is a, I think, a, if not the largest, then certainly one of the largest public speaking competitions for young people in the world. And uh, every school, every state secondary school across the whole of London and Essex has a fully funded public speaking workshop available for uh, 30 of its students. And and that's the first step. Then, in, in there's also a, a competition element that oh, for those who progress. So, yeah. So for a number of years, I was involved in that, and that, that continues to run to this day. In fact, the grand final for this year took place back in July. Excellent. So you're involved right from that level, third sector, as you say, in schools and yes. charity work, right up to your blue chip clients and workshops that you do. I, I suppose within corporates. Yes, that's corporates. right. Workshops and a lot of one-to-one actually and the work that I do in the early years I started out in 2008 which was an interesting time to leave one's job great August 2008 right in the middle of the credit crunch but anyway um, in the early years I did a lot of one-day workshops with groups small groups between perhaps as few as 10 maybe as many as 20 in the last few years actually the the amount of one-to-one work that I do has grown enormously I mean throughout the period lots of larger group sessions uh, 100 people plus but uh, particularly with more senior people it tends to be uh, one-to-one not always but m- mostly that's the case and, and yes in some cases very very high profile individuals where yeah you know presentations that are being covered you know in, in, they're in the media mm. so. so a lot of the work you do is in, in, in and around the London area I guess but a, a lot of it I'm, yeah. I'm based in London I live in South London in uh, in Streatham Hill but never work takes me a, around a bit. St. Reatham. St. Reatham, that's right. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. I always remember seeing the sign outside Brixton Tube Station across the road uh, advertising the, uh, the the South Chelsea Language Centre there in Brixton. Uh, yeah, I've been living in Brixton for a number of years as well. But yes, uh, I mean, yesterday I was in Cambridge working with engineers, for example. So lots of travel around the UK. And then from time to time where it's appropriate, uh, obviously international too. So I've had the good fortune to run sessions in I think about 20 countries now. Oh, so. fantastic. Uh, you're, you're, I think you're multilingual or bilingual as well, aren't I w- you? I wouldn't say bilingual, not definitely bilingual. not. No? But, uh, oh, okay. no, I invested a fair amount of time and energy in, in learning some Spanish and also improving French. Oh, well, there you so, go. Uh, okay. Yes, I spent a winter in a, in a French village down in the southwest of France, which is... Uh, I bet they're not so scared of public speaking on the continent. <laughs> <They're not. laughs> well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast, Simon. Before you go, I, I think um, I ask everybody now mm. if they can think of and uh, or recommend or suggest three of their favourite places mm-hmm. in and around London. Yes. The secret places. Uh, did you have a chance to have a, a think about that? I did have a think about that. Yes, absolutely. And two of them are restaurants, and okay. one of them is a place close to where I live. Okay. If that works. Yeah, absolutely yeah. perfect. We all um, have a good restaurant. So um, the first place that comes to mind is a, a restaurant quite close to here, actually. It's in Shepherd's Market. Shepherd's right. Market is one of my favourite places in London. Corner. Yeah, very close to be the to haunt here. of all the prostitutes in London. Uh, yes, yeah. although I hasten to add, not for that reason. Not for it's that. my favorite, yeah. uh, one of my favourite <laughs> places in London. But there's a restaurant there called L'Autre. Uh, I think for L apostrophe A U T R E, which of course looks and sounds French. Yes, uh, it's a Polish Mexican restaurant. Okay, I haven't come across many Polish Mexican restaurants. Yes, and uh, yeah. I, I just that's I, an interesting I crossover. It. I, it's yeah. just fantastic. I asked them how did this come about. They said, "Well, we we lost our we were a Mexican restaurant, and then we lost our chef, 
and we had to find someone at short notice and they said yeah absolutely we can do i can do enchiladas i can do mexican food it turned out he could purely do polish food so we ended up doing both so love that place excellent and then i think uh, a place that i love very close to where i live uh, so I, i'm almost and, it, and it's not terribly well known so i it definitely counts as a secret place unless uh-huh. you live in streatham at the top of streatham common near where i live there is off the back of the common the common itself is a wide open green space but at the top of the hill over the back there's a place called the rookery and it's a, 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 a large walled garden area on a hill and there's a, a lovely sloping lawns there and, and a, some woods to explore and it's it's not obvious to find it but it's fabulous so the rookery on just off stress and common at the top of the hill and then i think that the third place is one of the the first restaurant I fell in love with in London, actually, because I've always been a lover of wine. Uh, I fell in love with wine when I was a student. Couldn't afford any of the wine that I really liked as a student once I went into the workplace. But there's a place called the Cork and Bottle, uh, very close to Leicester Square Tube Station. And it's uh, down some stairs, so it's tucked away. But I think they've got a, a, that's a great place, too. Fantastic. Well, we shall uh, go and check those out. And I hope the listeners will go and check those yeah. out as well. It just remains for me to thank you very much for uh, being on the podcast today and taking time out of your busy schedule because I know how busy you are because how difficult it was to get hold of you. Uh, it's a real pleasure. Real <laughs> um, pleasure to, I, to I, chat. I know I nearly got kiboshed halfway through by the uh, <laughs> terms and conditions of this place. We managed it. To talk publicly in a public place of public speaking. But uh, there you go. We got there to the end. So thank you very much. And the weather held out as well. The weather did hold out, it's, yes. It's not raining just yet. So once again, thank you very much, Simon. It's been a pleasure. Delighted. look forward to seeing you again very soon. Thank you. Take care.